politics, social unrest, economic uncertainty, international conflicts, climate change. What is the significance of these current events? Where are we heading? Pastor Gary Webster shares answers from the Bible, giving you hope and certainty in the times ahead. Welcome to Countdown, Back to the Future. This episode is entitled, Globalism, the New World Order. All right, well, we're glad that you're here with us this afternoon. We are going to see some incredible things, and I trust that as a result of this afternoon, you might not only see that the Bible is so amazingly dependable and accurate, but that you will make a decision for Christ because we're going to see we're very close to the end of the world from today's program. Let's just bow together in prayer and ask God to help us. Father, this afternoon, may you give us understanding. May we see clearly what the Bible is talking about. And we just ask that you will help us to uh, be open to the moving of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We know that you're coming soon. And help us to want you to come because we love you because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're looking at globalism, the new world order. You know, there are a lot of people who have spoken about this new world order thing over the years. People like Sir Winston Churchill, others actually, including Mr. Putin and George Bush Sr., and even, even in more recent times. Uh, and the Bible actually talks about, if you like, a global new world order, a global world order consisting of three beasts. And that's really what we've been working towards and talking about. And today, you're going to see where they're aiming. But this is not the end of it. We're going to see how they're going to get their objectives in the programs next weekend. So these three beasts, the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast, uh, these, we, we could call this, this is what we would call globalism, if you like. These three powers working together in the end of time to get people to seek or to seek global worship, your allegiance and my allegiance. That's what they're up to. Now, we've noticed that the dragon represents Satan. We took a whole program on that uh, back a couple of weeks ago. So what do we want to identify this time is the sea beast and the land beast. Then we'll talk about the mark of the beast in our next presentation. We're going to go to university history as well and current events that are taking place around us in this presentation. So let's get into it. The beast from the sea, that's what we're going to look at first. Notice what John saw in Revelation chapter 13. John says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, you will have noticed that this is referring us back to Daniel 7. 
Because in Daniel chapter 7, we saw a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a horrible beast. And now all these are combined on one beast, the feet of a bear, mouth of a lion, and leopard. You can see that's where John is actually drawing his material from or getting it from. He's being directed back to Daniel 7. Remember, we saw this little horn that came out of the fourth beast and uprooted three horns as it came to power. This little horn power, this is the same power as in Revelation 13, only this time it's the whole beast that we're seeing. So in other words, this beast is the medieval dark age Christian church. That's what we're seeing here, but this time not from Daniel, but from John in Revelation. So let's go to the book of Revelation and notice John gives us six identifying characteristics so that we can know exactly that this is what he's talking about. The medieval dark age Christian church, six identifying characteristics. Again, he's not talking about people. He's talking about an institution or a system. Number one. He says this power arises in a populated region of the earth. How do we get that? Notice what it says. I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, it says. Now, we don't need to read the whole text because we just read it. Well, well, let's read it again. Having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns, ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Remember that what came up in Daniel 7. This little horn spoke blasphemies. He's referring to the same power. Now in the Bible, in the book of the prophecies of the Bible, seas or waters represent regions of large populations. How do we know that? Because Daniel, I should say John in Revelation tells us. We're going to see this woman next weekend. She's sitting on a scarlet colored beast, but it says she's also sitting on the waters. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot or the prostitute sits are peoples and multitudes and tongues, areas of large population. That's what he's saying. So this is exactly where the medieval dark age church it arose in populated Western Europe, the breakup of the Roman Empire, the Western part. That's where the medieval church arose uh, in that region of the world. Right there in the area of Italy. Number two, ancient Rome gave it its power. Notice what the Bible says here when we go to Revelation again. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now you say, but I thought the dragon represented Satan. Well, it does, but Satan doesn't come with a pitchfork, two pointy horns and a pointy tail, does he? He always worked through fronts, we saw. He uses powers. He uses uh, others to do his work. Always uses fronts. Remember, the first front for the devil was that snake. He talked through the snake to the woman. Now he uses the power of ancient Rome. In Revelation 12, 
Who's where the dragon chases the woman? There the dragon tries to get the baby from the woman who's the Christ child. Who did the dragon work through? Of course, it was ancient Rome. It was a Roman official who tried the baby Jesus. It was, of course, Roman governor who condemned Jesus to death. It was Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus. Roman soldiers guarded the tomb. The dragon worked through the pagan Roman uh, Empire. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Notice what history tells us. To the succession of the Caesars, the emperors of Rome, came the succession of the pontiffs or the bishops in Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the pontiff. In other words, eventually they took over the place. Now that's from Professor Labianca at the History Department of the University of Rome. The barbaric tribes, remember, broke up the Roman Empire in the West. And what do we notice? The Romans moved their capital to Constantinople. We saw that last week. So they moved their headquarters, the emperors there, and they now left really sort of vacant the Rome itself. And this is where the bishops of Rome took over. Notice what Stanley's history actually tells us. The popes or the bishops of Rome filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power, their prestige and their titles from paganism. Now, you'll notice that very clearly when we go and have a look a little bit in Rome itself. Here we have Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus takes a title, as did the other emperors, Pontifex Maximus, which means they were the chief priests of the state religion. Now, that title was also taken by the bishops of Rome, which is what Stanley's history is telling us. So they take the title. Here's an example. Paulus Pontifex Maxus. See, Pont Max. That's the, the abbreviated form of Pontifex Maxus. This man is a, a bishop of Rome right there. Number two, here's another example. Oh, there it is there. John Paul II, PM. That means Pontifex Maximus again. So he says they take their titles just as the Roman emperors had. That's what he's meaning when he says those things. Pontifex Maximus or PM. So the ancient Romans gave the church its power, its political clout. That's why, by the way, it's called the Church of Rome. The, the, the Church of Rome's not ashamed of that. They see themselves, in actual fact, to be the successors of the old pagan Roman emperor. They took over from them. Number three, that it would rule for 1,260 years. Let's notice it here. He was given authority, that's this beast, to continue for 42 months. So how do you get 1,260 years out of 42 months? It's very easy. In the Bible, a month only had 30 days. It didn't have 29 and 31. They were all actually 30 days. What they did every now and again was to add an extra month in some years to bring it back in line with, you know, the, the sun and so on. So this was a 30 days. So you multiply 42 by 30 and you'll get 1260, won't you? 
Very simple. That's exactly how it goes. So one prophetic day represents one literal year. So that's how we get 1260 years based on that great principle left by Ezekiel, the prophet that one day represents one year in prophecy. So 1260 days, 1260 years. That's how long this power would rule for, we're told, by John in the Revelation. Now, you will recall that in 538 AD, the Emperor Justinian, who's ruling from Istanbul or Constantinople, that man adds political power or political clout to the Bishop of Rome's religious authority. Because of what took place we saw last weekend, now that decree of Justinian goes into effect. So the medieval church dominates what we call Western Europe. The medieval church dominates for 1260 years from 538 to 1798. That's 1260 plus 538. Now, number four. Just like Daniel said, so John says this power will persecute for persecute God's people. So let's notice that now in Revelation again. It was granted to him to make war with the saints, God's friends, God's people, and to overcome them. That's almost the same language you notice in Daniel 7 that we saw on the Antichrist program. Now, persecution was a terrible thing during what we call the Dark Ages, the medieval Christian church. It's estimated at the lower end, 5 million. At the upper end, 50 million people were killed by the church. These, as we mentioned the other night, many of them were faithful priests, godly bishops, godly nuns and other people in the Christian church. Why? Because they could see that the church was straying from the Bible. The church wasn't following the scriptures properly. So these bishops and priests called the church back to the Bible. We need to come back to scripture. And sadly, because of that, many of these godly people were actually killed. You know, one of the, one of the sad things is that the church did not want the people to read the Bible in their own language. It was locked up in Latin and Greek. And when priests started to translate the Bible into the language of the people, they, 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 they were killed for that. We, we, we can't sort of understand that today, but sadly that's what's going, what's going on. And John predicted this. Notice what the church says. The church may by divine right, God allows them, it's saying, confiscate the property of heretics, imprison their person and condemn them to the flames. In our age, the right to inflict the severest penalties, even death, belongs to the church. There is no graver offense, that, offense than heresy, therefore it must be rooted out. As we said, that's a sad statement, isn't it? That people could take the sword and kill other people simply because you have a different opinion from the Bible or what, what you believe. Certainly no religious tolerance there, was it? And that was a sad thing. But the point is, 2,000 years ago, John was given visions by Jesus and predicted these things. Number five, this power would receive a deadly wound, says John. 
And I saw one of his heads. You notice he has a number of heads we saw on that beast. And one of his heads, as if it had been mortally wounded, receives a wound. Now, what's going on here? The Emperor Justinian gave the Bishop of Rome political power by the year 538. That goes into effect. And as we said the other night, exactly on time, 1798, Napoleon's general Berthier marches into the Vatican itself and he captured the Pope and he exiled him to Valence in France. Now, watch you, watch, this is interesting. The next Bishop of Rome, Pope Pius II, VII, he refers to this event in, his, in a letter, in his correspondence, as the deadly wound. Even the Bishop of Rome seems to have been reading Revelation chapter 13. He calls this a deadly wound. Uh, this, uh, this, you can visit Valence and read the history of what took place because this is where the bishop, the Pius VI, was imprisoned. Well, worse was to follow. Garibaldi, he led the Italians in, in a revolution known as Garibaldi's Revolution from 1866 to 1870, 1870. And when they did, they confiscated large tracts of land from the church. The church had vast territories and they, Garibaldi stripped the Church of Rome of much of their land and said, no, this belongs to Italy now, not the church. Not only that, they made the Pope or the Bishop of Rome virtually a prisoner inside the Vatican. So the rest of the popes for many years, that's pretty much where they're confined to, so to speak. And this is what people said back in those times back in the 17, late 1700s and 1800s when these events happened. They said the, church, the end of the Church of Rome has come. It's ruled very powerfully during the medieval period, but now it's finished. It's, it's had its day and that's it. It's over pretty much. But that's not what John said. John saw that this deadly wound would be healed, that things would turn back in favour of the medieval church. His deadly wound was healed. And then he says, all the world marveled and followed that sea beast. Now, we see a, an interesting fulfillment of that in the early part of the last century. Benito Mussolini, the Italian dictator who led Italy into the Second World War, in 1929, he signed a concordat known as the Lateran Treaty with Cardinal Gaspari. He signed on behalf of the Vatican, of the papacy. And what did this mean? This treaty that they signed together, it meant that the Vatican was an independent country in Italy. It was no longer part of Italy. It was a separate political entity in that country. That's what the Concordat, and of course it's very famous uh, uh, um, agreement, if you like, that was signed. In fact, the San Francisco Chronicle and other papers recorded this event, and notice what they called it, the mortal wound healed. Even the newspaper guys seem to be reading the book of Revelation. Even they've got their eyes out on prophecy. It's uncanny when you stop and think about it. What it says to us above everything else is this. This book must be taken seriously. God can see the end from the beginning. And he tells us this because he loved the people. He loved the people in the church. They're his children. 
And he, and he wants people to know he knows the future and he wants us to put our trust in him so that when these things happen, we might believe. Now, let me give you some examples of how this is being fulfilled in, in dramatic fashion today. Let's go back to Pope John Paul II. He was a very loved pope in, by the church back then. In fact, many people in the world really appreciated this bishop. He was known as the globe-trotting pope for very good reasons. He visited a lot of countries, you might recall, some of you. For the first 12 years of his pontificate, he visited 90 nations and was seen or heard by 3.5 billion people. That's half the world's population. Enormous. When you think about when people said back in the 1800s, finished, it's all over. Remember that. What about global political power for the Church of Rome? Do we see that today? I want you to have a think about some things. Right now, there are at least now 176 nations that have diplomatic relations with the Vatican. What does that mean? It means they don't see the church as just a church. They see it as a political power. That's what diplomats are about, aren't they? Isn't it? They are, they are political uh, people. So that's how the nations of the world today see this. And every leader in the world that's worth his salt is sooner or later going to have an audience with the Bishop of Rome, isn't he? Of course he is. I remember just yesterday, uh, who was the lady? German leader, Mrs. Merkel. I was just looking this up yesterday afternoon. She had an audience with the bishop just the other day, a day or two ago. Uh, every, every political leader sees that the bishop carries enormous power in the world today. Notice Kurt Voldheim, former United Nations Secretary General, Time magazine, October 1979, when for the first time the bishop actually visited a, 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 the United States of America. First time. And notice what he said. This is one of my greatest experiences in my life. Now here's a, an interesting document. This is a journal that's put out. It's called Papal Foreign Policy. And this is written up in a journal for diplomats, for those who who are ambassadors to various countries. Brian Heher is the Professor of Ethics and International Politics at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. I want you to notice what he wrote about the reign of, the, um, of Pope John Paul II. He said, this is the most activist papacy in modern history. Very Powerful. Number two, not since the Middle or the Dark Ages can a comparably broad conception of papal activity be found. Interesting words from these people. One more, the Vatican acts like a state, but not simply a state, because, of course, it's a religious entity as well as a political entity. And that's what he's saying. But I think one of the most fascinating books that I have in my library is this one here, because it's written by a very devout a member of the Church of Rome. He was a Jesuit priest, uh, Malachi Martin, the keys of this blood. I want you to notice what this man said about John Paul, his, his pontificate. And he's a devout member of the Church of Rome. In secularized, that's in the eyes of people in general, the Roman Church stands alone. The Pope is by definition the world's first fully-fledged geopolitical leader. So you'll see what we're sharing here 
is not just something we've cooked up, but even people in the Church of Rome acknowledge that this is the case today, and, and that's what, what they see. What about global religious power? Well, let me give you an exa a few examples of this power that is going today. I want to refer back to a very important prayer conference that took place during the reign of John Paul II. It was the Assisi Prayer Summit. They've just had another one just the other day and all sorts of people were at that summit. You might have seen it uh, on the news. Uh, people from all different religions showed up. And my point is, is this. I, I don't have a problem with people coming together to pray together. Praying together is a good thing. But I'm simply pointing out that, hey, Nobody else could pull this off but one person. 160 leaders and representatives of divergent groups from around the world showed up. Who were they that came? Jews and Muslims, Buddhists and Sikhs, Anglicans and Orthodox Christians from Eastern Orthodox religions, Reformed churches, their Protestant churches, World Council of Churches, which includes Protestant churches. Various people showed up. Let me assure you, no Baptist leader could have pulled that off. <laughs> no other religious leader could have pulled this off. There's enormous political and religious power. Now, here's some things that are fascinating indeed. I find amazing when we consider that John wrote these things 2,000 years ago. Unbelievable he predicted these things. Robert Runcie is the former Archbishop of Canterbury. In other words, he was the leader of the Anglican Church in England. Notice what this man said. It's astounding. For the universal church, for, for Christianity as a whole, he's saying, I renew the plea. Could not all Christians come to reconsider the kind of primacy? That's the the bishops of Rome throughout the ancient world, they were the number one bishops. He's saying, couldn't the whole of Christian church recognize the kind of primacy, the number one spot the bishop of Rome exercised within the early church back in the ancient times? A presiding of love for the sake of unity of the churches in the diversity of their mission. Excuse me, sir. You are the leader of the Anglican Church and you are saying, could not all Christians recognize the Bishop of Rome as number one? That's an amazing thing that's happening in the world. Here's another one. Pope Benedict, do you remember when the previous Bishop of Rome, Pope Benedict, invited Anglicans to return back to the Church of Rome? I remember that. 2009, I tell you what, that caught the world's attention big time. Do you know what, when, when, when Pope Benedict invited Anglicans to come back to the Church of Rome, five bishops in, 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 in England jumped ship straight away. Wow, it was amazing. It took people by surprise. In fact, the Bulletin newspaper in Philadelphia, their family newspaper, had an amazing article on this. Now, you remember when the Berlin Wall came down, some of you remember that. My wife and I were watching the, the, uh, a, a program on the news that night and here were all these people demonstrating at the East Berlin Wall, at the Berlin Wall, and the reporter came up and he said, well, folks, we're seeing amazing things here tonight. I, I think we'll find that probably in about three years this wall will no longer be. You know, next morning the wall was down. 
It just caught everybody by surprise. They didn't expect it. So now he's, he's using this, this great thing that shocked the world back in the late, uh, what was it, early 1990s, late, late 1980s. He's using this and he says, man, that caught the world by surprise. When the Bishop of Rome invited Anglicans to come back to the Church of Rome, Notice what he says. It's very perceptive because we're going to see this is where we're heading today. Like the falling of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Boom. We didn't expect it. In other words, the possibility that the Catholic Church of the English, that means the Anglican Church in, and so on. That's, that includes the Episcopalians in America and so on, all Anglicans. The, the possibility that the, Angli, the English might finally come home to Rome in my lifetime was paralyzing I never expected this said this man notice what he says next this is an earthquake the dead end of the reformation is now apparent whoa that's amazing words what was the reformation godly priests Godly bishops in the Church of Rome back in the 14, 1500s were calling the church to come back to the Bible because they could see there were some problems. Do you know at one time back in the 1400s, there were three bishops, three popes at the one time ruling. So they had a big conference right there in Constance to sort this thing out. And that's what these godly priests and bishops, come on, we need to come back to the Bible. This can't be. And so he says, and as a result of those, those protests by different people, there was what we call a reformation. And, and, and so he says, now it's all over. Wow. No more reformation. No more protest. Bertel Workström, this is incredible, because Bertel Workström was a leader in the Swedish Angli Lutheran Church. Now, the Lutheran Church started when, when one priest called Martin Luther decided, listen, we need to come back to the Bible. And you know the story of Martin Luther. So the Lutheran church began out of this. Um, uh, but he was a godly priest. And notice what this man says. The Protestant Reformation, that's what's happened with Martin Luther and others in Europe back in the 1500s. The Protestant Reformation was meant as a movement for reform within the one holy apostolic church. The moment has come when we must say that the denunciations at the time of the Reformation are no longer valid. Excuse me, sir, you are the le a leader in the Lutheran Church and you're saying Martin Luther got it wrong? Wow. Incredible things are happening in our world. Just one more. Protestant reformers like Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, a whole bunch of others, these, many of these had been priests or were priests in the Church of Rome, they began, as they studied the Bible, they saw from Scripture that justification is by faith alone in Jesus. What does that mean? It means you and I are right with God when we simply come and say, God, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus. The moment a person comes to Christ, as they are, they are pardoned. They are forgiven and they're ready to meet Almighty God should they die or Jesus should come. Right now they're ready. That's what we call justification. Now the reformers, those great priests and, and bishops in the church, as they read their Bibles seriously, they saw that that's the truth. It's alone in Jesus. Because the Bible says there's no other name in heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
So they taught that they're right with God solely by faith in Christ's death. Now, unfortunately, the church had been teaching this, that we're right with God by our faith plus our human works, plus our human efforts. Now, the problem with that is you never know whether you've done enough because if you've got a part in it, whenever is your good stuff good enough? You never know that. But the Bible teaches, no, we're saved by faith alone. Now, I want you to notice what's just been happening right now around the world in the last few years. In the declaration on the doctrine of justification, how we're right with God by faith, there is now agreement on justification by faith between the Lutherans and the Roman Catholic churches. In other words, they all believe the same thing. But it's not because the Church of Rome has changed. It's because Protestants have changed. They've changed their definitions a little. Now this, this idea is now accepted by Lutherans, Catholics, Anglicans, Methodists and the World Communion of Reformed Churches. They all believe that we all believe the same thing about how we're saved by faith. But for the Church of Rome, it includes works. No question, it's still the same. Now, this man, he is just as well the Archbishop of Canterbury. Not sure if he's still the one, but he was the last one or whether he's still going. I think he's still going. He says the reason for the Protestant Reformation is finished now because we all believe the same about this teaching. When the Lutheran World Federation and the Catholic Church signed the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification, how we're right with God in 1999, you resolve the underlying theological question of 1517. That's when Martin Luther nailed his thing to the door of the church and the reformation began in a decisive moment for all churches in the search for unity and reconciliation in other words we do not need a protestant reformation anymore wow what's the point we're making the church has incredible not just political power in the world but religious influence and we're actually seeing it right now this week uh, in what is going on to be continued. You've been listening to Countdown Back to the Future, made available by the Victoria Park Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Vic Park SDA Church. Feel no alarm.
Tempests may blow and mudstorm clouds arise, obscuring the brightness of light. I'm never alarmed at the overcast skies, the Master looks on at the John Marshall family sang Living by Faith. Coming up next, Fountain View Academy will sing Victory Through Grace.
This is Jesus Paid It All by Wintley Phipps. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in Thy power and thine alone Can change the leper spots And melt the heart of stone Jesus paid it all All to him I A crimson stain He washed it white as snow Oh, nothing good have I Whereby thy grace to claim I'll wash my garments white In the blood of Calvary's land Jesus paid it all All to him I owe Sin Sin had left a crimson stain. Sin had left a crimson stain. He was. 
compiled by Remnant Publications, the book Get Ready for a Miracle recounts true stories that prove that when we step out in faith, God displays His power in undeniable ways. Here is our reader, Harold Harker. This story is entitled Spared in a Rollover. Psalm 91, 1-3 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. On a beautiful Sabbath afternoon, I joined four other young people, Philip, Ruthie, Christy and Jennifer, for a drive and hike in the mountains. It was 88 degrees Fahrenheit outside, and the prospect of getting into the cooler mountains was quite appealing. After piling into Philip's Nissan Pathfinder, we meandered down the paved country roads toward the gravel mountain roads. Friday evening's storm of heavy wind and rain had left a few branches and twigs on the road, and we passed a forest service crew cleaning up the mess. Wildflowers dotted the ditches and ridges. Occasional overlooks gave us views far into the distance. Finding one road labelled unmaintained, we curiously followed it until finding a road closed gate. We got out there and looked around. Woof! Our little dog enjoyed romping through the weeds. We called him Petey for short. The birds were singing cheerfully. I picked up a sprig of wild lilies that had been broken by the evening storm and placed them in some water to keep them alive. After driving some more, it was time to turn back toward home. However, our attention was drawn to another logging road, a bit rougher than the last one. We decided to quickly explore the road and if it was lengthy, we would return another day for further exploration. No signs or gates blocked the road, and there was evidence of previous traffic, so we headed down it in four-wheel drive at less than five miles per hour. The slope of the mountain was down to the right and up to the left. Pausing at a steeper part of the trail, we analysed the situation. I've been down much steeper and more rugged than this, I said. I'm confident we can make it back out. While true of that part of the trail, we did not foresee what only a few more feet ahead was. The trail was somewhat narrow, but appeared wide enough for us to navigate. Over time, erosion had made the former roadbed into more of a ditch that, in addition to the row of shrubs and trees along the right side of the trail, gave us a sense of security. The right tyre would have to go up before going over the edge. Even so, to get a better look at the road, Philip took his seat belt off. What we found out, however, is that our sense of security was false. Suddenly, 
the front right tyre fell sharply out from under us into a washout. It seemed like the road disappeared from under the tyre. This isn't going to be good, I thought to myself, as my heart began racing. Instinctively, Philip turned sharply toward the left and gave the engine a bit of gas. The front tyres seemed to grab the road, but the rear tyre fell into the washed-out rut. In what seemed like slow motion, the left tyres bid farewell to the roadbed and we pitched over the edge. The slope was quite steep. What happened next terrified all of us. The vehicle landed on its roof, slid a little ways down the mountainside and struck a large tree with its front bumper. Before this, Philip had flown out of his seat, tumbling around inside the vehicle like a rag doll. I vividly remember seeing him slide across the ceiling and groaning as he bumped hard into the upper part of the windshield support in front of me. His leg went out the broken windshield and his body was sliding toward my door window. I immediately saw that he would either break his legs or get crushed outside my window, so I reached out and grabbed him toward me. I can remember feeling warmth or something, I guess his body, but it felt like I was holding a feather. He didn't feel heavy, even though I held on to him during the rest of the rolls. Simultaneously, Ruthie ended up about halfway out the side window. Jennifer reached over and pulled Ruthie in. Later, Jennifer would comment that she felt she was given supernatural strength. Except for the sound of cracking branches, crumpling metal and shattering glass, we were quiet inside the vehicle as it continued rolling down the mountainside. As the rolling started to pick up speed, Christy called out desperately, Lord, save us! Literally, at that instant, we hit something hard and came to a stop, wheels down, roof up, front of the Pathfinder facing uphill. This is amazing, because a much steeper slope remained for us to roll down. Relieved but stunned, we all sat there for a couple of moments, collecting our senses. Phew! Were we all alive and well? Nobody had major bleeding. Nobody had broken bones. Was everything okay? Steam was billowing up from the hood with a hissing sound. Where's Petey? I heard from the back seat. He was no longer in the vehicle and I instantly assumed he had been crushed. We don't know yet, somebody said from the back seat. We need to get out of here. Where are my shoes? Those in the back seat each lost their shoes. Someone handed me my glasses, which had fallen into the back seat. I put them back on and someone said, your glasses are crooked. I thought, that's funny. I don't care if they are crooked, let's get out of this vehicle. Once we climbed out of the vehicle, we began to assess the situation. 
along a path probably a hundred feet long was a trail of broken small trees, fresh dirt, glass, windshield, a mirror, books, papers, tools, water bottles, carpet, trim and some crushed lilies sprinkled the gully. I remember thinking that those lilies would have made nice grave flowers. No dog showed up. As we retraced the path of our roll back up to the road, we recovered things that seemed important. We were 20 miles down a gravel road in the mountains and we would probably need all the resources we could recover. Fairly soon, all shoes were recovered. We would need those for hiking out. I found a flashlight. We'll need this if we have to walk out and flag someone down to get their attention, I thought to myself. It was about three hours from sundown. We collected all water bottles that we could find. We might need those too if we have to hike out. Now we needed to focus on getting out of there. As the first two people made it back to the main road, a hiker came by and offered some band-aids for the deeper cuts. We found Philip's cell phone, uncrushed, laying on top of the dirt near where we first flipped. And the coverage? Probably none this far into the woods, but no, there was a 100% signal. Amazed, we tested the signal out a little down the road each way, and it was very low to none. Miraculously, we were able to call for help. We found some seats in a nearby mountain cemetery where we waited until help arrived. We each told God how thankful we were that he had spared each of our lives without serious injury. We each also asked if we could have our little dog back. We all loved Petey. God knew exactly where Petey was, even though we didn't, and if he saw it best that we get him back, he would come back. Just a few minutes before help arrived, Petey slinked out of the woods with a concerned look on his face. Once he recognised faces, though, he was excited. So were we. That day, our adversary Satan wanted to get rid of five people who had dedicated their lives to mission service. However, he could not touch us beyond what God allowed. Not only did God spare each of our lives, but he spared us each from serious injury. A few cuts, some bruises, some sore muscles and seatbelt burns were about as serious as it got. God also cares about details. My glasses were still usable. Petey lived. The hiker gave us adhesive bandages. Philip's phone wasn't buried in the dirt. The accident occurred in a small spot of cell phone signal and we hit the major trees only on the bumpers. I believe we all survived this event with a deeper desire to commit our lives 100% to God's work. We were also impressed with the importance of always being ready for Jesus to come. It is so important 
to keep open communication with God throughout each day. Each day we should give our lives to Him for Him to control. During the role, my life did not pass before me, as many people say happens just before death. I did not have any time to make things right with the Lord. I have to live ready to die. No, I don't live in fear of death. I live in confidence that God has a plan for my life and that He controls the events in my life. While remaining within His will, I have absolutely nothing to fear. A reflection associated with this story comes from Desire of Ages, page 639. As you open your door to Christ's needy and suffering ones, you are welcoming unseen angels. You invite the companionship of heavenly beings. They bring a sacred atmosphere of joy and peace. They come with praises upon their lips and an answering strain is heard in heaven. Every deed of mercy makes music there. The Father from His throne numbers the unselfish workers among His most precious treasures. This story, spared in a rollover, was written by Jonathan Dietrich. He's the director of Desert Tree Ministry in Chad, Africa. You can find more details on their website, deserttreeministry.org. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.